Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast exploring how to deal effectively with conflict, actual and potential, good and bad. Engaging guests discuss a range of insights, and I cover tips and topics based on my 35-year fascination with conflict and my experience helping people with it. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. My guest today is Dr. Dennis Jaffe, a recognized expert on family enterprises. We discuss some findings represented in his recent book, Borrowed from Your Grandchildren. As Dennis notes, when we spoke on March 27, 2020, many brick-and-mortar bookstores were closed. Dennis, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Thank you. I am as well. I would ask you, if you would, to start by telling us a bit about how you got to where you are today professionally. Well, in a nutshell, um, about um, six years ago, I made a great career decision, which is that I retired. Yes. <laughs> and so I, I uh, left, uh, retired as a, as a professor and uh, asked myself what I wanted to do. And I'd been working as an advisor to family businesses um, for 30 uh, some odd years um, since the field began. And there were some questions that I had that, that I had been gnawing at me that I finally got to. And first one being, I was working in the U.S. and a lot of the ideas that we had about family business and um, seemed to me very U.S. centric. And so I wondered whether families in other parts of the world were, were doing and using some of the things that people were suggesting. Mm-hmm. And then in, in general, I was uh, wondering, well, we kind of advocate all these things. What do families that are successful actually do? And I was really influenced by the um, research um, of good, good to great and the excellence research. And I, I like to not look at the average family business, but really look at the best family businesses. So for the past six years, I've been traveling um, literally around the world, uh, over 20 countries, and interviewing family members from large, not just family businesses, but what I call family enterprises that are families that share assets. And sometimes they've sold their uh, legacy business and they have a number of different assets or financial investments and that are past the third generation. So they, they've kind of overcome the curse of uh, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, and they're obviously thriving in the third generation yes. as a business and as a family. Great. So I went to those families, and I asked them how they evolved as a family, how they changed what they did, and uh, you know what made them successful, so that we could apply their wisdom to the experience of uh, younger family businesses that wanted to become long-term and successful. Dennis, I want to ask you to go back. I, I hear the word uh, evolution and the idea of evolution. And I think of all things that you could have devoted your career to, 
Why this? How did it turn out to be these families? Well, first of all, um, a lot of the family business research comes out of business schools, and business mm-hmm. schools look at a business, um, and sometimes they look at it at one time. They say, well, what? how do we differentiate successful from unsuccessful businesses? And I um, was looking at the family first because the family precedes the business. And, and what I learned um, in my study is that the, um, the families, family businesses are different than public corporations with a lot of owners because the owners of a family business are all family members. They're related to each other. And because they're related, they have in not just financial goals, but they have non-financial goals and values that they respect. Yes. And in addition, I think unlike a lot of companies now, the family businesses are interested in handing something uh, off to their children and their grandchildren. So they have a long-term perspective. So I got interested in family businesses because they were examples of people in business together that had um, financial and non-financial goals, Mm -hmm. values, and they had a long-term perspective. And I think those businesses that I studied have a lot to teach, not just other family businesses, but how to be a successful business in general. Tell us a little bit about how you decided from, I want to say academic, although you were retired, from that perspective, how you decided which families to study and how to design this research project. The easy part was saying I wanted to study successful families. So I defined (laughs) them as very, very simply as families that had succeeded and thrived past the third generation. So they were moving into the fourth generation or later, and they had a shared identity as a family, and they were um, large and successful. So the average, um, uh, the, the median uh, family in my study is approaching a billion-dollar net worth. So these were mm-hmm. huge families, and, um, and those were the three criteria. The, the challenge that I had was getting these families to agree to be interviewed and open up and, and, uh-huh. and do that. I had uh, help from two networks, the Global Family Business Network that has family members uh, in 30 countries and the Family Office Exchange, which is a global network of family offices. And they helped introduce me and um, get these families to open up. All Mm -hmm. the families in the study are, are anonymous, so I don't say who they are, but these families are very private. And it was uh, kind of easier, I think, to get the names. And uh, the challenge was to get them and to say, will you be interviewed and will you speak candidly about what your family has done and what you've learned and and what's been successful and and unsuccessful? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So how long did it take you to do the research part? That's why it took six years. (laughs) All told, uh, there was a group of us um, that I pulled together, but I did majority of the interviewing. And we interviewed two members from different generations of over 100 families. And now we're continuing. So the research um, is going on, even uh, with the publication of a book that just came out on the research. We're still continuing and, and learning new things every day. Well, let's talk more about the book. I really enjoyed being able, from my perspective, to focus on some of the ideas that you raised, which seem quite positive about how some of these families have dealt with conflict. Well, that's it. I mean, people say, um, you know, we want, there are families that have conflict. 
and families that somehow don't. And what I found from uh, talking to these families is that conflict is a reality. Conflict arises when you go from one owner and one person who founds and creates the business to set of children, and those people have children, and they marry people who have different ideas. And all of a sudden, a family goes from one person in charge to a community of people that live in different places and have somewhat different perspectives and mindsets. So conflict grows up. The thing that is, um, I think, most exciting and, and meaningful about these families is they developed a mechanism for anticipating and for managing conflict such that they were able to make tough decisions without hurting the business and relationships were able to get through difficulty. And they create a number of mechanisms to manage conflict. Every family talked about conflicts between branches, between generations. One family that had a really different idea, fights and rivalries. They all had that, but the families developed very, very specific ways of dealing with it, which I saw in many, if not most of these families. Which seems terrific to me to have you be able to confirm that, of course, it's going to happen. We are humans. We're not going to agree on everything, but that you can deal with it effectively. Talk to us a bit about the idea of the anticipating that this is going to happen. That's just inevitable. So you're sitting in the family, and, and it's easy for the, for the elders um, in the family to say, hey, it's been successful for 30 or 40 years. Why change? Right. And that's actually a problem because the change is going to happen. Change is going to happen externally in the business environment and internally in the fact that there are more and more family members. Yes. So the successful families, sometimes prodded by the next generation, sometimes prodded by um, spouses and uh, other people um, in the family, um, said, we, we have to plan for the future and we have to plan for a large number of people. We have to plan for a new generation. And these families set up two things. They set up a family organization. Um, they, some called it a family council, uh, family meetings. And the family meetings were focused on setting rules and mm -hmm. policies. How do you get a job in the family business? Mm -hmm. uh, how, are you, um, how are you evaluated for competence? How is the money distributed? Uh, who makes decisions? If there's a, a conflict of, of values or someone is, has a criticism, uh, how is it dealt with? And these families set up a council and um, a, a thing that they call a family constitution or a family agreement that talks about how they're going to deal with these things. And the successful families set it up for the next generation so that not so that there are no conflict, but so they have a way of, of dealing with conflict. Uh, mm -hmm. Who makes the decision? Mm -hmm. um, if they have a board of directors, things like who gets on the board of directors, who has input, can make suggestions, uh, who can, uh, you know, talk about, um, you know, what the family does. If the family has a foundation, who's involved uh, with it? Yes. Uh, there, there are a lot of things in the family set up these, basically a family organization alongside the business organization and the financial organization to deal with family conflicts. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is absolutely um, essential because mm -hmm. the family begins maybe with one or two owners, but by the third or fourth generation, some families have 60, 80, 100, 200 
family owners and they all have to agree. And, and Somehow. This is not an easy thing. No, not at all. And as you describe this, Dennis, I'm hearing the idea of preventing damaging conflict, the idea of if we have a policy, if we have some rules, those are our touchstones instead of we make it up as we go along. And how come that branch got to do X and the other branch did not get to do X? That can't be fair because that fairness word and the perception of what is fair can be such a challenge. Well, here's the way it is. In a family, the conflicts are mostly about what's fair. And fair is in the eye of the beholder. You can say, um, we have clear rules and values, but different people will interpret them differently. Mm -hmm. So every family has issues and disagreements about what's fair. Now, the family sets things up for making decisions, but there'll be some decisions that are contentious. So, for example, the biggest, you know, one of the areas of contention is when is the older generation um, supposed to step aside? Or when does the family ask someone who is not performing capably to, uh, to leave? Mm-hmm. When it's a family member, this is an issue. And so the family, sometimes these decisions are made and, and families talk about a, a, a stage of evolution where they move from making decisions because you're a family member, they give you the benefit of the doubt to a uh, system where they say, we have to make decisions that are best for the business because that's in everybody's interest. And sometimes we have to say that a family member um, uh, is not doing their job um, or is is not coming through. Now, there are fights and there are differences, for example, about what to invest in. Sustainable investments, the younger generation asks, the older generation says, hey, we like what we do and we can't afford it. Sometimes uh, one of the things, the mechanisms that families have is that they have a a process where family members that don't want to be part of the great entity over generations can leave. Mm -hmm. And very often one branch of the family or one group of families or um, a dissident family says, fine, I can't get along, buy me out. And the family is wise to buy somebody out and to create a fair process to do that rather than to have to be dealing with um, someone, you know, two branches or two people that, that can't get along. Right. So leaving is a conflict that mechanism. Having a decision-making process, some families use, they, they have boards of directors and they have non-family independent board members. And the independent board members are sometimes called in when there's a family conflict and, um, and they can help mediate. Mm-hmm. And, and there isn't any one thing that's magic, but rather the fact that the family has mechanisms so that it can deal with conflict short of dissolving into right. lawsuits and, and bringing in uh, judges yeah. and, and um, legal issues rather it, than working it out themselves. doesn't need to be catastrophic. It can be sometimes an opportunity for creativity and collaboration, but not if it gets off the rails and causes a lot of damage. I think I may have gotten you off track when you were telling us that there were two main things. One was the creation of some sort of a body or organization, which is has the role of helping the family with these sorts of decisions that will help it deal effectively with conflict. And I don't know if I led you away from a specific number two. Well, the specific number two was is is an exit exit policy. Mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. Is a, 
basically, um, if you don't like it, you can leave because there's not room in the, you know, there's not room in this town for two, for both of us to be here. <laughs> and um, sometimes that that's true. And why should these people, just because they, they're um, relatives and they inherited this thing together, have to be partners for life and deal with each other? So splitting the business um, or cashing sure. one person out is, is really necessary. Can that preserve the family to allow them to have a family relationship and not a business relationship? Sometimes, and, and sometimes, you know, it's like uncles and, and cousins are not close. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people are not very close with their, um, their first cousins over the years. If you're in a family business together, um, you have annual meetings, you have business meetings, you have family meetings, you have things that you have to do together. So um, you better like and get along with your cousins. Whereas if you're just relatives, you can just decide whether you want to visit them or not. Uh, talk to them or not. So uh, in some ways, family businesses are captive partnerships, and some people don't want to be captives. Right. So Dennis, I noticed and very much appreciated in the book, borrowed from your grandchildren, the idea of a code of conduct and how that can be helpful to families. Every family, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's working together or not, has legal agreements, shareholder agreements, um, estate agreements, inheritance agreements, things like that. But these are these are about what's done. But what a code of conduct does is when the family members get together, it says, how do we act? Um, it's, it's kind of a value statement. And, and so when you have family meetings, for example, families say, well, how do we want to behave uh, in the meeting? And so they talk about listening. They talk about everybody having a say. They talk about not screaming and yelling at each other um, and uh, what to do in a fight. Um, they talk about uh, a number of things that are, that are kind of like good behavior, and uh, very often they write that down. The code of conduct sometimes extends to family behavior. For example, um, some families say, well, we are very well-known members of the community, so um, we don't want family members to be showing up in uh, – you know, uh, newspaper columns uh, for partying or things like that. And they have, again, they, they have rules. And these are not obviously legally enforceable agreements, but they're kind of family agrees to try to observe these things and to ask their children to observe them because um, they're all in it together. Mm -hmm. So families um, very often have a code of conduct. And this is something when somebody, um, they feel that somebody is stretching it or not behaving, the family in some way um, talks to them or, or, you know, works with them about how do we stop this? Yes. Yeah. I have a feeling this is an unfair question, but I'll ask it anyway, which is whether you have a general sense, and of course, we don't have time to go into great detail, but a general sense of what would be the key factors that help families deal with conflict effectively that seem to work across the globe? Because we certainly know different cultures have different expectations, different histories, obviously. But are there any things that are truly common across these families? Anticipating conflict, setting rules, having a family that gets together and engages and talks to each other. And um, one that, that we haven't talked about is that Families have a, um, a, a great tendency to avoid 
conflict yes. and not talk about it. If, if people disagree or somebody's using drugs or whatever it is, you know, a lot of families whisper to each other, but they don't talk about it. And I think the successful families, because they're in business together, they can't not talk about these things. These things cost money. So interesting, Dennis. So these yes. families have ways to get together and not push it under the rug, but talk about difficult things. And this is, they talk, uh, the families talk about how hard it is, Yes. how much, even though they have codes of conduct and rules and things like that, how much family members want to kind of avoid the issue and not talk about it. And, um, and how, um, you know, some courageous people in the family bring it up and, and force the family to deal with it openly. Fantastic. Because I think, as you say, so many families face these challenges, but if they're not in business, maybe they feel, well, what, what is the opportunity cost? What the heck? We'll just pretend this isn't happening. But if you're in business together, the financial impact can be real. Right. So, so the families, um, you know, all bring up when I ask them, for example, what's the biggest crisis that you've overcome? Um, they'll all talk about something that people knew about um, before, but uh, didn't face up to. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, they could be business issues like people say, well, gee, we had a great business and we made profit, but profit was going down every year and we were making less and less money. And uh, we weren't innovating and, um, you know, so facing up to a business issue. Um, We have to innovate. We have to invest. And that means that everybody is going to take out less money every year because we want the business to be successful in 20 years. Um, And it means we got to pay now. Well, that perspective seems like a very important one and certainly key to your work currently and the work you've done for a long time. Dennis, thank you for giving us at least a taste of some of the interesting insights in the book that came from the research. Where would folks reach you and where could they find out more about the book? Well, the book is published by Wiley. It's called Borrowed from Your Grandchildren, The Evolution of Hundred-Year Family Enterprises. And it tells the stories of these hundred families that uh, we interviewed all over the world, and you can get it on uh, Amazon in uh, ebook form or in physical uh, book form. Um, I don't know. I hope I, uh, people go to bookstores, but right now bookstores are are not um, mostly open, so um, it should be in bookstores. But Amazon is the place to get it. And um, people can, can kind of find, find me on my website, which is named, of course, DennisJaffe.com. And I have a lot of other articles and working papers and, you know, things that you can download uh, on the website. I'm easy to get in touch with. Well, let me ask you one final question. Are there any predictions about when the next phase of the research has reached a point where you will be writing about it? Well, we're writing, you know, we're writing some individual working papers. So mm. I, I think right now I'm, we're setting up to write a working paper about matriarchs and, and, and women who inherit uh, and control the business and didn't intend to and how they take on leadership. Um, we're writing more about transitions and how businesses handle transitions and, and crises. And, and we're, we're kind of writing a number of, you know, kind of smaller papers, how do people 
uh, organize as a family and what do families do together. And we're publishing them in different family business magazine, trusts and estates, just a number of uh, different places um, where, where we can. And we, we, we just like to share, the, share what we're learning as, as widely as we can. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of your wisdom with my listeners today. And we look forward to learning more as you find out more. Well, thank you, Jay. This is a wonderful conversation. And, and uh, the idea of, of conflict, I think, is an essential one for people to work out um, in these difficult times. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Crafting Solutions to Conflict podcast, please share it. Leave a rating or review. Subscribe through one of the major apps. For anyone new to podcasts, here's something you may not know. Subscribing is free. You can also find the show at craftingsolutionstoconflict.com. Comments or ideas? Let me know. Until next time, I'm Jane Bettle.